After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I come from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw his fathers laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brothers shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall be a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to 
your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Genesis 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, and, and their right and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls back, backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their hills. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a string. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is, is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts of the, and of the womb. The blessing of your father are, the blessings of your father are, all, are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field 
of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field, the field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizram. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of, God, of, the, the, servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that, my, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them. And spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived a hundred and ten years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you 
and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Because when I was printing off my notes this morning, we still had some leftover letterhead from Town Acres Elementary School because this last week was the Town Acres Carnival and we were working on that. Well, Tiff was working on that and I was just doing whatever she needed me to do. Uh, so if I occasionally start saying names of various secretaries or principals or anything this morning, just, just ignore me, move on. Um, so we're going we're gonna to finish up Genesis this morning. Um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm really going to miss this book. I really have like loved this study and seeing the way when you, when you go through, and this is why we go through whole books of the Bible as a church, because when you, when you sit in one book and you kind of see and take it all in, in context, in one giant, one giant piece, you don't miss the little details that are being woven throughout all the stories. We, we could have pulled out any one of these stories and spent four or five weeks on it, moved on to another story, followed somebody in a different part of the Bible or skipped to a different book. But, but just being able to take 50 chapters, nine almost, nine full months. Yeah, this is the end of, right, we're at the end of December. So we've been in this for nine months and not, and not skip any verses. We've read everything. By the end of this, we're going to have an audio recording of our church reading the whole book of Genesis out loud together. And I think that is so cool. And as we've been going through, there have been these themes that we've been seeing play out throughout. And I think these last three chapters of the book do a really good job of, again, highlighting, and I've got three themes three main themes that I've seen throughout this whole book that we've been going through. And so as we kind of go through these together, I just want us to kind of see what the text today has for us, but also reflect on what God's been saying to us as a church for the past nine months. And I know not all of us have been here every week. Some of us, this is our first or second time being here for this series. And, and if that's true, for you, then don't feel like you've missed out on everything because the truths that we're going to talk about today are still true for you, whether or not you've been here as we've been teaching them for the last nine months. Um, but the th first thing that I want us to look at, and because we, we, kind of we kind of have the end of Joseph's story yet again. We keep, not Joseph, we get, yes, the end of Joseph's story, but the end of Jacob's story yet again. He keeps being this central figure to us. The last, I guess quarter of the book really feels like it's a lot about jo Jacob and his family. And so, and so we kind of get this, this nice kind of send-off for him as he gets to kind of say goodbye to all of his sons and kind, of, and kind of bless them and charge them with some various things to keep in mind moving forward. And he really gets to kind of hand it off and, and kind of close what God would have for his people. Because, because again, from, from Genesis 1, and God creating everything, and from, from Genesis 3, when everything gets broken because of sin, God has been saying, I have a plan to fix this. And then, and then from, from Genesis 12 on, when, when we meet Abraham, and, and we see God saying, I'm going to work through this specific family now 
God has been saying, I have this intent for a particular people that I'm going to call out, I'm going to call together, and I'm going to make into a great nation that we can accomplish something um, amazing through so that we can unite all of these people who have fallen away from us because of sin back to ourselves. That's been God's plan all along. And so, and so as Joseph brings his sons into his father's presence so that, so that he can be blessed by them, be blessed by him one more time before he dies, um, what is the first thing that Jacob says? Bring, bring your sons to me so that I can bless them. And I don't know why, and it always hurts my feelings because I am left-handed. Any of the lefties might feel the same way. I don't know why it's such a big deal that he put his left hand on the older one, and that was so offensive. But at the same time, culturally speaking, he's, he's, giving, he's giving prominence to the younger son, right? And it says he crosses over, and, it, and Joseph was like, no, 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 Dad, you got this wrong. You can't see. You gotta, let, me, let me fix it. He's like, no, no, no. I am intentionally trying to, and this has been a theme throughout the book. God using weakness and humility and maybe the, the one who would be thought of lesser to accomplish greater things. I mean, think about who it is that's blessing the younger son over the older son as he crosses his hands and puts his hands on Joseph's son's heads. Right? This is, this is Jacob. This is Jacob, the younger brother who wasn't supposed to be the one who was the heir to his father, who wasn't supposed to be the one who was the primary means through which God was going to bring about a great nation. But Jacob, who had been chosen as the younger son to accomplish all of these great things above and beyond what his brother was called to. That same Jacob now is saying, God is going to bless both of these sons. But, but again, God echoing these same things. Jacob, younger son, chosen above older brother. Isaac, younger son, chosen above older brother. Think, think back to... Uh, think back to in the garden, right after, Seth, younger son, chosen above older brothers. God uses weakness and humility and, and, what, and what societally we would assume is the less important to accomplish his will, to accomplish his purpose. And, and I think it's still cool because, because, because Jacob says to Joseph, no, 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 both of these sons are going to be great. It's just that, that God's going God's to grow your younger son into an even greater nation. And, and I think it's, it's interesting because, because as we look forward, when you go through the tribes and you look at how the land ends up getting divided up, it, it plays out that way. But, but you'll notice later on, there is no tribe of Joseph that gets remembered when we're looking at the tribes of Israel. It's the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph's sons, who Jacob says, they're going to be as my heirs. They're going to become great nations all on their own. And so, and so throughout Genesis, we've continued to see this key theme over and over and over again of God using the unexpected, God using the lesser, God using the weaker, God using the younger. And so I want us as a church to, to, to be reminded of this truth because sometimes we don't feel like we're the ones who deserve to be the ones out leading or out the, out being out the ones who are saying, hey, we have this, this great thing to say. We're just this, I, I can fall into this trap myself. 
it, it's tempting for me to sometimes not feel like I have a lot that I can offer outside of these. It's like, we're a small little humble church. We're just us. But, but perhaps God is able to do amazing, great, world-changing things through, through such a small little community that he's given us here at CRC. Maybe, maybe you haven't been saved for a long time, or you don't feel like, well, I haven't studied nearly as much as, as some of these guys who are up here preaching. Believe me. It, it's not about how hard you have studied or how much you have read. It matters what the Holy Spirit it works out within you. And, and your willingness to be obedient to the call to take the gospel out and preach it and say it to people and, 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 and share it with other people. So maybe you feel like, I'm, I'm too unimportant in the kingdom of God to accomplish anything great. I would say, look at all of these examples of all these different people that we've been following for the last nine months. And be reminded that God continually is choosing those who seem like they are not the obvious choice to carry his promises out. Joseph one of the youngest sons, most despised by his brother, cast off and sent away. That's the one who God is using to save all of his people and bring them into Egypt so that they could be cared for. So that's thought number one, that God uses our weakness and humility and the unexpected people to accomplish his purpose. But as, but as Jacob continues to talk to Joseph and then ultimately brings all of his sons in together. He doesn't see Egypt as the end for them, right? He calls them all together and he says, guys, I'm about to die. But when I die, I need you guys to promise that you're not going to just bury me here. I want you to bury me back in the land of Canaan where my father's buried and where his father's buried. Because, and I think this is important for us, because, because Jacob trusts in the faithfulness of God, and he never saw Egypt as home. He knew that there was a land of promise that was their home. That land that God, when he first called Abraham, said, leave your family and all that you have and start walking and I'll show you where I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you somewhere. I'm going to give you a land. And there, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Jacob never lost sight of that promise. He never lost hope that God was going to continue to be faithful to that specific promise that had been made to his grandfather many, many years before. He still believes God to be faithful. And again, this has been, I think, one of the most powerful themes that I've seen throughout this book is that God makes all of these promises that he's going to accomplish things and, and he might leave his people waiting for a very long time for him to accomplish that. It might not be immediate that that response comes through, I'm going to do this great thing and then the next day, bam, there's this great thing. No, it might be, hey Abraham, you're going to have a son and then years and years and years and years and years later, after a child with a servant, trying to fix God's problems that he, that he perceives God has overlooked, God continues to be faithful and answers that promise in giving him Isaac. It may be that God says, I'm going to send you all away to Egypt for a little while so that you can survive, so that your family can thrive, so that you can be protected and grow like we talked about last week. But at no point did Jacob, and now as he's encouraging his sons did he lose sight of the fact that God said, I'm going to make you a great nation 
in this land. This is your land that I have called you to. And it's going to be a long time. It's going to be hundreds of years before Israel gets to come back, before they see this realized. I mean, even Joseph says, when, when you go back, take my bones with you and bury them there in the land of Canaan that God has promised to us. This, this always trusting that God is going to finish the thing that he says he's going to do has been so prominent for us throughout this whole book. And I think, again, it's easy for us to get very short-sighted when we look at our lives and we say, God says he's going to do this, or, or God promised that he was going to do this in my life, and I haven't seen it happen yet. And we can be tempted to doubt. We can be tempted to become frustrated or angry. We can be tempted to try to solve God's problems on our own, try to find some sort of other solution other than what God promised. I'm going to kind of come up with some sort of way to, to help God finish the things that he's promised to me. But what we've continued to see over the past nine months and, and what, what any believer who's, who's known God and trusted God for any long period of time will be able to tell you is, man, I've seen what God promises he's going to do and I've seen how faithful he is to me. Yes, sometimes, like we said, like we said with Joseph a few weeks ago, he might still leave you in prison for a long time, even though he's told you he's going to do an amazing thing. He may promise to you that your brothers are going to bow down before you, and it may be 20 years before that promise becomes completely fulfilled. But when God promises things to people, he is faithful to follow through on those things that he has promised. So Jacob trusts in the faithfulness of God. He believes that these things are going to come about. He, he, he is never wavering at this point, which is, which is so great because he was so, just knowing where Jacob came from, to come to this point where he is so wholeheartedly trusting that God is going to do all of these amazing things that he said he's going to do. He's not trying to manipulate the system. He's not trying to find solutions. He's He's trusting God and saying, this is going to happen. And when it does, when God has made you into a great nation, you're going to get to go home. And that's where I want to be because that's where, that's where God said his people would be. So God uses weakness and humility and, and, and those who are unexpected to accomplish his purpose. We can trust that God is going to continue to be faithful to the promises that he makes. And then we get to see Jacob call all of his sons together and, and he's going to bless them. And, and, and it's interesting as you look at these blessings that he gives to each of his sons. He starts at the oldest and works his way to the youngest. And as he's working through, different sons get longer amounts of time. Like some of the sons get like a sentence. A couple of the sons get some really long chunks. The longest two uh, blessings are to Joseph and to Judah. And all of these promises that he's making, all these blessings that he's making to his sons are, are connected to or related to some part of their past. Like when he talks to Simeon and Levi and he talks about their violence, we, we studied that, we've read that, we saw their, 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 their rage after their, their sister got, got sinned against, and we'll just leave it at that. Once their sister got sinned against and they went and they slaughtered a whole city so that they could, they could get their revenge Jacob's saying, this is affecting you. You're still going to become 
people, but you're not going to become as great. You're going to be scattered throughout the nation. And, and this is true. We know this to be true because the Levites, many years later, are going to be given the task of, of working in the temple, but they're not going to have a land inheritance. They're just going to have some cities here and there. They don't get their own portion of land. These, these promises, these blessings that Jacob is making upon his sons are, are, are going to be coming out exactly as he says they will. But again, the sons who he gives the most time to, Joseph, Judah, they aren't the oldest, they aren't the strongest. But God has specific calling for them. And, and, and we see that being true. Uh, I'm going to read Psalm 78. This is verse 67 and 68. This is talking about how God eventually worked with them. It says, He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. Judah ultimately was the one who was called out, was given the most. And we see this played out. We talked about this last week from the tribe of Judah is going to come the ultimate solution to everything. The Redeemer, Jesus. We sang about him this morning. The Lion of Judah. And in this moment, as, as Jacob is, is saying goodbye to his sons and blessing them and, and reminding them of the promises, we're getting, again, just this, this glimpse as he's calling Judah out above all of his brothers. We're getting this reminder of this promise doesn't just end when we're becoming a people, when we become a nation. There's, there's a long-term solution here. There's, there's an actual fix in mind. There is, there is something that God has been working toward from, from the very beginning. And that's kind of where I want us to, to land for the rest of the, our time this morning because, because after he dies and his brothers get afraid, oh man, now Joseph's going to get his revenge on us. Now he's going to have time to get mad because dad's not here to protect us anymore. And so, and so they're like, hey, Joseph, are we, are we cool now? Can we be good can we be friends? Can you, can you forgive us you know, for throwing you in a pit, selling you into slavery, and you ending up in prison for a long time? Can we, can we be cool? And, and, I, and I love, and we've talked about this, Joseph's perspective on everything that God had been doing in his life all along never wavered. We never saw bitterness. We never saw anger. We only saw this trusting and hoping that God would be faithful to him. And his final message to his brothers as we get to the end of chapter 15 kind of reflects in what I, what I think is super true, the overarching theme of Genesis and what the author of Genesis really wanted us to be left with as we're reading this history of how God began to form this nation, this people through which he was going to bring about redemption and salvation. And it's rightly, it's important that we rightly understand why all of the evil that has been present throughout the book of Genesis has been present. Because, because his brothers are saying, we did this evil thing against you, can you forgive us? And he's saying, and I'm just going to read it again. He says, this is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If you want another verse to memorize, 
Genesis 50, 20 would be a great one. Because, because it, it, it speaks to this kind of big picture understanding of how God has been at work throughout not just Joseph's life, but I believe that's reflective of how God has been working throughout all of Genesis as we have been studying it. There's, there's this idea, and, and I'm going to get a little bit theology student nerdy with you for a few minutes, but if you can just stay with me when we get out the other side, when we, when we get to the end of the theology part, I think it can be very rewarding for us. There's this discussion, and, and anybody who ever takes any seminary classes will be have, tasked with writing a paper or a discussion post or something about the idea of the problem of evil. And I'm going I'm to give you the problem of evil, and it's this, if there is evil present in the world, which there is, we see evil present in the world. We've seen evil present throughout Genesis. How can God both be all-powerful and all-good? Because either he, the, the problem of evil says he has to be one or the other. If he's all-powerful, then he can't be all-good because he's causing all of this evil to be present in the world. Well, if he's all-good, then he can't be all-powerful because why would evil be able to be here if he was powerful enough to keep it away? And this is a conundrum that, that the world has been trying to understand for years and years and years. And I'm not going to just make it perfect and pretty for you right now because people have been trying to write discussion board posts on it for at least the last 50 years. And those discussion board posts get very long. And you get very tired of reading all the responses. But, but it is important for us, I think, to pair this with verse 20 of chapter 50 to kind of get an idea of what God is doing here. Because, because he says... He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that word meant is very important. So here's, here's your really nerdy part. We're going to do a little Hebrew for now. So the word for meant there is kashav, which means to, to devise, to purpose, to plan, to invent, to create, to intend for something to happen. What you meant for evil, you devised, you schemed, you came up with, you enacted. You wanted this thing to happen and made it happen. What you intended for evil, God, and it's the same word, intended. God was, in, was working in that moment in the same way that we understand that the brothers we're, we're doing something evil. We're causing this thing to happen. God, he's saying, God was at work causing that thing to happen in the same way that you perceived you were the ones accomplishing this. Do you see that connection there? And here's, here's, here's the point. We can take this truth. This evil that's taking place is God working out his desired purpose. Right. That's, that's the bottom line of what, what Joseph saying to his brothers. You, you desired this evil, and God desired that this evil take place and caused this, this to happen through you. God was at work in that. Let's just look back through Genesis at all of the different evil things that we've seen happening. I mean, we can start, we can start with the fall. We can start with the fact that sin entered the world to begin with. That... The, the, that even at that moment, are we saying that God was not, was not purposing that things happened the way that they did? That God was, was powerless to let that thing happen? Or are we going to say that God was trying to work something out through it? 
there's, a, there's a, an old dead guy who wrote lots of things. His name was Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Or Augustine, if you really want to get like super nerdy on the whole thing. So Augustine, when he was writing about the idea of the fall, the idea of sin entering the world, said of original sin, for God judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit any evil to exist. You're like, so what are you saying? I'm saying, if we're looking at Joseph's perspective on the evil that's been present in his life, and the evil that's been present, the sin that's been present in the lives of people throughout this whole study, we have to understand that God has been working out something very specifically because he understands that, that, that we need to see him bringing good out of evil so that we can understand how powerful and redemptive and forgiving and grace-filled and merciful he is as a God. He killed all of humanity, but he saved Noah and his family. He called Abraham to sacrifice his own son only to replace him with a ram. Jacob, the deceiver, took his brother's birthright and stole his father's blessing. And yet God is still going to bring through him the great nation throughout through which we've been studying. Think, think of Jacob when he went to go find a wife. He, he, found, he found Rachel and he wanted to marry Rachel. And Laban, Laban deceptively gives him Leah, his other daughter. And, and, and Jacob's angry. He's like, this isn't the woman that I wanted to marry. And, and through all this deception and sin, he has this other wife who he doesn't love the same way, but who becomes the mother of Judah. We studied, we studied this story in chapter 38 about Judah and Tamar, which we're not going to recap. But suffice it to say, Judah was a sinner. And there was lots of wickedness present in this family that God has been using. But from Judah will come the line of King David, who will sit on the throne forever as Jesus, his son, eventually comes through that family. All throughout this book, there has been evil taking place. There has been wickedness. There has been sin. But at no point in this story have we seen a moment when God was not in control of creation. God has been using His creation sovereignly. He's been sovereign. He's, let, me say, let me say this again. God has been sovereign over and using evil for His own purposes through this whole book. This is not me trying to say, so go out and do evil things because God's got your back. That's not what we're saying here. That's not the bottom line. But the bottom line is don't become discouraged when there is evil present in your life. Or don't think, because I have committed this sin or this thing is present in my life, that God can do nothing with me anymore. God is doing something through that evil. 
God, God is doing something through the fact that sin entered into his creation. God, God desired that these things work this way because he wanted to bring about redemption. He wanted to demonstrate his ability to save, his ability to forgive, his ability to restore, his ability to reconcile us back to himself. The place that Joseph has come to by the time we get to chapter 50 and this reminder that we're being left with, that the author of Genesis is leaving us with, by the time we get to the end of this book, kind of mirrors um, this. There's this old, and it's, it's, a, it's a Catholic phrase. I'm going to try to read the Latin, and I apologize for butchering it ahead of time. It says, O Felix Culpa, Catalum etantum meruit haberi redemptorum, which means, O oh, happy fault that earned for us so great, so glorious a redeemer. It's this idea that we can still rejoice when evil is present around us. We can still rejoice when we look at who we have been and see that sin is still within us and that we still need a savior to get us out of our sin. Maybe you feel trapped where you are now, or maybe you have been struggling with some sin for a long time. Maybe you look back at who you have been. Maybe you look back at the things that you have done, and you are worried that there is no hope for you. There is no salvation possible for you. Instead, our perspective should be, Oh, happy fault. What he's saying is, we can rejoice that these things have happened because now we can look and say, but look, I have this Savior, this Redeemer. Without this sin being present, there would have been no need for Jesus. We would not have this amazing story to tell of our fall, our sin. And this amazing story of how God, from the moment we fell as humanity, the very first conversation he had with us again, he said, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to be the one who fixes it. And though we've been following all of these sinful people through this whole book, and we've seen all these evil things that have happened in their lives, and the things that they've done to one another, or done to themselves, or put themselves in these places where, where, they're, where they're revealed for being just as wicked and depraved as they could possibly be. And though we, if you continued to read on through Exodus, and you kept going, and you continued to follow the people of God, all the way up to today, continuing to follow the people of God, the thing that continues to be true about us is that we are still a wicked and sinful people that are being saved miraculously by a loving and redemptive God who desired that we go through this and live through this and see all of the wickedness and sin around us so that he might say to us, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to reconcile you to myself. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to make you part of my family. If there's anything that I would hope that we as a church could rest in coming out of Genesis is this absolute trust that our God, the creator of everything, the one who has made all of these amazing promises and we continue to see be faithful, that our faith would be absolutely, firmly, unwaveringly planted in him.
no matter what it is that we're in, no matter where it is that we've been, no matter what it is that we've done, that we would know that He has been at work all along and we can put our full faith and hope and trust in Him. Let's pray.